0: There are two questions you're likely to have the first time you arrive at the Berlin airport and take the train towards the city. The first is, wait, what's an ABC ticket? And the second is, perhaps, what are all these little houses on the side of the tracks? Pretty soon, the flood of other exciting buildings and landscapes will wipe this question from your mind. But it won't be long until you're biking outside the ring, exploring your new neighborhood, or just stepping into Tempelhoferfeld and you discover another group of tiny houses. Each has its own little fence and garden. Some have colorful decorations and lawn chairs. Some look like only a gnome could live there. And now the question comes back into your head. What are these places? Followed, maybe, by a new question. How can I get one? Hello everyone and welcome back to Another Berlin, a podcast where we dive into an everyday, possibly overlooked place or concept in Berlin and break down how it shaped or continues to shape the city. We are Cody
1: and Katarina, and we're joined again by Nick.
0: Howdy y'all, I'm Nick.
1: In this episode, we're tackling a topic we've long discussed and have all personally been intrigued by, garden colonies.
0: One quick disclaimer before we dive in. We are not professional historians and history is tricky. Even though we worked really hard to give you the best information available, there's a tiny chance we missed something.
1: Known in German by various names, these places have been a part of Germany and especially Berlin since the 1800s. Today, they exist in nearly every neighborhood of the city, either in spaces hidden behind buildings, former sections of no man's land, or in vast fields with row after row of up to 1,000 small houses. Germany has 1 million garden plots, with roughly 70,000 in Berlin alone. Altogether, these gardens make up one fourth of all green space. That is roughly 9 Felds or 25 parks. Each allotment is conceptually positioned somewhere between a weekend or summer home and a self-sufficient personal garden. In fact, you are encouraged to grow at least a small amount of food. In many ways, garden homes today are meant to separate you from your normal routine. In fact, they don't typically allow electricity or internet it can be quite striking to leave the city behind just by stepping through a small fence.
2: I'm Lucia. I'm an architect, and we have this garden
3: in Temple Hall. I'm Andy, I'm an architect too, and we share this garden, obviously.
1: Over the summer, Lucia and Andy spend most of their weekends here in their garden Growing different kinds of food, they were kind enough to give us a tour. Well, and teach me a bit about what different plants look like.
2: The house is twenty-four square meters, and the garden is around four hundred square meters. Oh,
1: and here it looks like a grape. No,
2: actually, no. How is it called that? These orange things that you what ah, what the tomatoes. Always... No, ficus. Mm. And what is this? This is not food. No, no this, this is... is only flowers, and we. We plant like m- mixture of, like, this mix you can buy with wildflowers, mm-hmm. like for the bees and so on. Um, these are the strawberries that grow like crazy. And that's also a, an aubergine. <laughs> aubergine? Yeah, oh, we nice. ate a lot of aubergines this year. Oh, nice. One third of the of the area should be kind of planted with flowers or vegetables and trees, like fruit trees. I think this is very nice, and I think actually a third maybe is too is too little, and should be even more. But of course, many people just want to have grass because it then you know, it's a bit less work. In summer, we spend almost every weekend here, and we relax and we cook with friends and. And this is kind of something that makes us the happiest. We can plant a lot of uh, vegetables and tomatoes. And during the summertime, we don't buy any vegetables because we can have so many. And instead of going to the restaurant, you have your main ingredients, so you don't have to transport everything. And if the weather is nice, it's super nice to be here. And yeah, like friends like to come, so why not?
0: For those relatively new to garden homes, time is often spent between actual gardening and leisure or somewhere in between.
2: If you walk around, you would normally see that you know, from the path until the house, sometimes the garden is really nice, but not, very rarely you see people enjoying the space around there. And most part of the people like the place where they eat or where they spend time is behind the house. And we like more the space like in front of the house, you know, between the path and the house. And Many neighbors always ask, why do you sit there? Why don't you sit like, in the private area behind the house? And I mean, because like in the end, everybody is behind the house. So we are the only ones staying in front and not so many people are working around. So well, it's like kind of our private space is actually in front of the house. But yeah, there's something I realized is, yeah, very, you know, interesting.
0: A mandatory companion to each garden home is a small structure, which is somewhere between a shed and an actual home. These are called lauba. And Lucia and Andy are currently in the process of renovating theirs.
1: And there is something about these small garden communities that feels so private. Partially because of how closed off they are to normal streets, it wasn't until recently that I even walked through one.
2: And for us, when we walk through, when we start to think we want maybe to have this garden, we felt like we were kind of getting into this, this private space of these other people. We felt like these uh, paths between the gardens were somewhere private. But actually, we realized now this is something completely public.
3: I mean, one of the basic thoughts um, behind it is that you connect the, 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 the public spaces with the um, semi-public or semi-private spaces of the colonies. So all the pathways, they always have to be public. This is one of the basic principles, actually, of the colonies. And it's, it's one basic idea that you de- connect those two worlds, actually. And it's quite interesting because there's so many really huge colonies here and they're all different. And It's quite enjoyable actually to walk around them and see you know, how they work and how people are.
1: Garden homes don't exist alone. You won't ever find just one sandwiched between two buildings on a street in Kreuzberg. Legally, they have to be joined in a group of at least five with shared paths, and this cluster is called a garden colony. In Berlin alone, there are over 100 colonies. Some colonies, like Marsenjand in Weißensee, are huge, with nearly 1,000 gardens covering on almost a half a square kilometer.
4: But how does one get one of these garden homes, you may ask? Well, it's complicated. Annually there's only a 4% turnover in garden colony tenants, meanwhile the wait list to get one is about 5 times that. 20% of Berlin's allotments are privately owned, but the rest are semi-public, meaning the city rents them out, and technically all citizens are eligible to rent one of these from the city regardless of their citizenship, income, or background. And since the gardens are part of Berlin's public infrastructure, the Senate is in charge of planning and distribution, but you technically rent them out from your local district association. And on top of that, each garden colony has its own association, which manages, maintains, and regulates its own specific space.
2: You kind of apply for a district you want to have a garden, then you register there and have an application, and then a bit of a couple of forms. It was kind of a bit of a coincidence because we were not looking for one. But like we have friends from the neighbors and the neighbors, oh, there will be a a few free. So then we kind of join this list and then we wait like for a year.
1: Waiting time of one year is not unusual in Berlin. Lucia and Andy can even consider being lucky because they got some inside knowledge from residents. On average, you could end up waiting five years or more
2: and then, of course, like if you are not available on that day because you're on holiday or whatever, you kind of miss the chance, so it's also a bit of luck. If you're away, you just lose your place and you have to wait for the next garden being available.
1: So, let's say you apply, and you get on the list, and you wait, and you're in town on the day they ask you to come see the garden and sign the contract. What now? First, the district association in charge of your new garden allotment will check the state of the house and garden, and based on that, you'll pay a one-time fee, usually around €4,000. Then, there might be a few things that aren't up to the current garden colony code, and it will be your job to fix that.
0: The good news is that even though the rent cap didn't work for Berlin apartments, it has been working pretty well for garden colonies for nearly 100 years. Essentially, it can't cost more than four times what farmers pay for their cultivated land. In Berlin, this cap is currently set to about 36 cents per square meter. So for an average garden home, you're looking at only about 1,000 euro a year or less. Not bad. In order to continue to pay such cheap rent for your second home in Berlin, you need to adhere to a few rules. One of which is your garden home cannot be an actual home. These rules come in part from an actual law passed by the federal government, as well as the city of Berlin and even individual colonies.
1: There can be electricity, but no heating. These are supposed to be summertime properties after all. TV and internet is strictly forbidden, toilets are allowed, but none with actual plumbing. The city of Berlin regulates the maximum allowed height of a fence separating the two properties and the maximum size of grills, ponds or pools. Some of these seem arbitrary, but it turns out that grill smoke drifting into neighbor's garden is one of the largest causes of fights within colonies. In a similar vein, walnut trees are not allowed in Berlin garden colonies because they have large roots that can grow into neighbor's property.
3: For example, you can't do any, any noises on Sundays, and you can't do any noises between 1 o'clock and 3 o'clock, and you can't do any noises during night. So when do you actually want to um, do some more, not heavy garden work, but maybe um, want to do some construction work in your house, you can't do it within those schedules. But, as usually, it always depends on your neighbors. When they complain, you might have a problem. And when nobody complains, it's, it's still all right somehow. Although it's within a kind of legally gray zone. But they complain, so you cannot do that.
1: <laughs> These rules may seem strange or extremely specific. That's largely in part because they are a patchwork structure grown from nearly 150 years of German culture and history.
4: Schrebergarten, Kleingarten, whatever you call them, the fact they go by so many names is telling of their complicated and varied history. They've been around in some form or another since the 18th century, but they really began to take their modern shape in the late 19th. At the time, there were massive demographic changes going on all across Germany. Berlin in particular was the most rapidly growing and industrializing city in the world. Along with that came all of the common ills of industrialization, urban pollution, overcrowding, abysmal housing and working conditions, and a class of working hungry arose who could barely afford to feed themselves from their full-time factory jobs. The German Red Cross began operating what would become known as Arbeitergärten, or workers' gardens, reserving undeveloped plots across the city to be cultivated for and by workers, giving these impoverished Berliners a much-needed supplementary source of sustenance and income by forcing them to work a second job and calling it charity. Around the same time, a German physician by the name of Martin Schreiber theorized that rising rates of mental illness and crime was due to the aforementioned urban quality of life, or lack thereof, and to be fair, we'd all probably be a little nuts if we lived in one of these 19th century industrial hellscapes. Schreber believed he could prevent these psychological maladies by putting children through a regimen of systemic remedial exercise and fresh air. Though Schreber had nothing to do with the gardens that would eventually take his name, proponents of his theory set up a Schreberplatz, where urban youth would be quote, exercised. This wasn't just your middle school gym class, though the Schreber inspired regiment was more about putting kids to work than having a little fun in the sun. And before long, small gardens were erected on the Schreiberplatz as another way of keeping kids busy, through manual labor. Eventually, the parents got involved not to stop the child labor, but to get in on the action. It turns out, when you're a 19th century German bureaucrat working an office job all day, getting your hands a little dirty in the sunshine came as a welcome release, and at the time, there was no real conception of hobby gardening. But these Schrebegaten came to fill an unintended niche, they were quickly appropriated by middle-class gardeners who treated them more as an exercise in self-help and a sort of romanticized return to nature. Though these new Schrebegaten had little to do with Dr. Schrebe or his theories, the name stuck and they quickly spread all across the country. So Berlin's garden colonies grew from these two roots, no pun intended. On the one hand, you had the large, abeitegaten colonies, organized top-down by charitable organizations and cultivated by the working poor, while on the other hand, you had the well-to-do schreiber gardeners who treated gardening as a bourgeoisie pastime and self-help hobby. By the 20th century, communities from both backgrounds began merging to form large associations which lobbied for the protection and expansion of their little urban oases. However, the gardeners often found themselves at ideological odds with each other. The Arbeitgearten viewed themselves as inherently socialist centralized spaces for and by workers, while the gardeners wanted their plots to remain deregulated and private. The central conflict in these early colonies was whether the movement was to quote one garden association brochure, proletarian and democratic or bourgeoisie and patriarchal, which in many ways was the microcosm for the political and class struggles all across Germany in the 20th century. Which brings us right up to the point of World War I. While Berlin didn't see any direct fighting, Berliners were left with systemic food shortages. To offset this, individual gardeners began turning to full-time cultivation of their plots for sustenance and sale. This was a vital lifeline for Berliners, particularly during the infamous turnip winter of 1916, which needless to say wasn't a swell time to be living in Berlin. The government quickly realized the importance of this supplemental food production and quickly began subsidizing garden rent prices and repurposing more and more unused urban land for these allotments. And in fact, the gardens were deemed so important by war's end that one of the first laws passed by the Weimar Republic, as in literally before the Weimar Constitution had even been ratified, was the 1919 Allotment Garden and Small Lease Land Regulation, which controlled rent prices and officially protected the majority of the gardens from future development, which is largely what we have to thank for these gardens even still existing today. Thanks to these laws, garden associations continued to grow in the 20s, but were soon suppressed by guess who? The Nazis, who viewed these garden organizations as inherently leftist and democratic. They forcibly took over and merged them into a single association under direct government control. Towards the end of World War II, the situation for Berliners had grown even more dire as all resources were diverted towards total war, leaving civilians with little to nothing to eat. And by the winter of 45, all garden colonies, as well as public parks and squares had been turned into ad hoc urban farms, which were literally the only source of food for millions of Berliners trapped in the city. Throughout the Cold War, the surviving colonies became central to life on both sides of the wall, but with the divide of the city, their fate and character diverged. The West Berliners flocked to their allotments as an escape from the confining nature of living in a walled-in city. In fact, hundreds of new gardens popped up in the often unused strips of land adjacent to the wall. The East German government, on the other hand, at first treated the gardens with skepticism considering their partitioned plots as inherently anti-communal. But when it was seen how much the gardens contributed to the food, variety, and security of East German cities, they decided to leave them in the hands of individuals. Dachas, as they came to be known in the East, served as everything from homes, community centers, and a treasured source of fruits and vegetables that wouldn't otherwise have been found on the DDR store shelves. Since the fall of the wall, garden allotments have remained a ubiquitous site across Berlin. But in the 90s, no one was quite sure what to do with them or even who had jurisdiction over them. You can imagine how complicated merging two desperate halves of a city were, and obviously garden colonies weren't exactly at the top of anyone's priority list. The tumult of reunification led to many colonies being abandoned, evicted, or torn down for development, but at the same time, this legal uncertainty allowed many to find new purposes. Hi, I'm
5: Julian. I'm from Berlin, born and raised. And then when I was five, we moved into a garden house.
0: Between 1995 and 2005, Julian and his parents lived in a garden colony in Northwest Berlin. We met up there for our interview, and he was kind enough to share a little bit about his childhood. The living room, at least, still mostly had electricity.
5: So this is the entrance and right to my right is my parents' bedroom. And also I think there's a lot of mold here somewhere. (laughs) Down there is the, well, it's not a basement, it's just... Well, it is a basement, but there's nothing there. And Then the next room would be my room. It's now our storage place. This is where my bed was here, my TV was here, and this is where I grew up. Also nothing special happened here, so... (laughs) So we had a kitchen, It's small, but it works. That's where our microwave was, which was obviously important. It's a beautiful bathroom. We had this, what is it called, this like water heater thing. It broke down many times and didn't really work long enough to fill up the bathtub and take a bath. So I didn't have a bath until I moved out and had my own apartment and behind this door is the place that we never went yeah this is awful <laughs> oh here's a poster of adam brody it's my old closet damn i used to laugh OC. see <laughs> <laughs> open it that's the living room the only room that has close to no mold and that's where we rehearse now. It is definitely the biggest room in this house and that's where I lived 10 years of my life. In
1: 1983, federal allotment law introduced the overall ban on permanent living in allotment gardens throughout the whole of Germany. In Berlin, especially in the Eastern part at the time, living in allotment garden was well tolerated. The federal law also introduced a rule of the maximum 24 square meter size of the Laube. But the problem was, the majority of the old structures were considerably larger. Julian's colony, for instance, dates back in 1932 and it was made as a residential garden colony at the time. Hence, all of the Laube in Julian's colony look like real houses.
5: I just remembered I went to a party at a garden house when I was a teenager. And I went there and I remembered it was only like one room and a toilet. No kitchen, nothing. And I was like, what the fuck? Like, I grew up in one. Like, I know it's three rooms, big kitchen, big bathroom. You know, And went there and I was like, this is it? That's like the first time I realized, okay, usually Laube is really just one room. So when I told people I grew up in a garden house, they were like, what? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's insane. I was thinking about this for weeks. The immediate neighbor, their grandson used to be my friend. And read. it wasn't a Playboy, but I think the Bravo, which is like the very big German, you know, teenage magazine. And we were like, oh, look at these. Because there's one page where it shows naked man and naked woman. And then it's also another thing is Dr. summer And... People ask him questions. Can you get pregnant when you kiss somebody? Can you this and this? Is my period normal? And it was part of growing up in a (laughs) curtain house. But still, it wasn't really such a community. Like we didn't really hang out with neighbors or anything. We talked to them, but it wasn't like having neighbors. It wasn't like suburbia. There's really nothing here the most exciting thing was the ice cream truck that came in summer sometimes 2005 we had to move out and we left this place and we we kept it as a as a summer summer place and yeah many people are living here still some people don't give a damn because they have their blinds open and you can see into the the house and you see there on the couch watching TV
0: Now that the garden home is in Julian's name, the responsibility to maintain or to keep it is on him. And because of the nature of when his family got the allotment, it's not exactly simple.
5: When somebody else takes the place over, then it would be our duty to take part of the house down because the house we have here is too big for the piece of land, which is a joke because it's not big.
0: Regardless, Julian will be responsible for paying to get his garden home torn down to the acceptable legal size, if or when he moves out, which isn't cheap. It echoes similar situations where an older resident living alone in a large apartment in Berlin is unable to move into something smaller that fits their needs without paying a lot more because currently they have rent control. While at the same time, families are unable to even find an expensive apartment bigger than one bedroom. If Julian decided he really didn't want the garden home anymore, it might make more financial sense to just let it become fully overgrown rather than get rid of it or pass it along to someone else. But for now, at least, Julian plans to keep the garden home and fix it up. Well, the
5: plan is to... Do the garden, and then even have some like barbecues here as it's supposed to be used, you know? And then hopefully come here every week, at least.
0: Like many things in Berlin, garden communities can be very polarizing. Perhaps like a club, there are many people waiting in line to get in, but can't. People who enthusiastically just got in and are exploring all the rooms and perhaps people who have been inside for just a bit too long. Lastly, there are those who think the clubs are obnoxious and should be torn down to make way for something else. This brings us to another question. What will tomorrow look like for us, or you, dear listener, who, after all this, might still want a garden home?
1: Around 20 years ago, the Senate started laying out the future of gardens with the so-called Kleingarten development plans. First, they started to permanently protect the majority of garden colonies from demolition. And, according to the most recent plan, no new ones are going to be built in the next 10 years. Statistically, just 2% of Berlin residents have a chance to rent a Kleingarten. Since Berlin is an ever-growing city, under current circumstances, this number is hardly going to increase in the future.
0: At the same time, the turnover of existing contracts is very slow. On average, tenants keep their garden for around 18 years. This partially results in the average age of the current tenants being around 60, which is 20 years more than the average of Berliners. Even when the tenants do let go of their longly-held contracts, between 30 to 50% pass them on to their family. Even though inheriting Klein Gardens is illegal, this is not strictly enforced. So, if half the gardens have been in one family for generations, the turnover is slow due to long contracts, no new gardens are being built, it kind of feels like these are a bit uh, exclusive.
1: What we're about to share with you is not by any means official information, but it's kind of word of mouth that garden colonies can sometimes foster a bit strange communities. Unfortunately, they have a cliché status for being a bit spießig, one of those uniquely German words that means something between stuck-up, square, and close-minded all at once. Not to mention the somewhat nationalistic tendencies of some of the gardens, where more German flags can be seen waving than perhaps any other place in the city.
5: You have to picture this whole area here as like old white Germans. They love to have their little garden. They love to have their community. I mean, geez, it was a big thing when an Arabic family moved in. Big problem for many people. And I didn't as a child think of anything, but I heard people talk. And I remember them being a little off about the whole a non-German family moving in. And even my mom, which I'm not of was a little, yeah, they're doing this and this and this. You, you could feel it. They didn't try to get in contact with them They didn't try to like welcome them as much as if it would have been a white German family.
3: But I think there are some spots at least where you can definitely feel it and, and see it by signs or by um, how people talk. And there's definitely more than uh, just a rumor. It's at least at least in, in some parts it's it's reality that you have more, um, let's say, nationalistic feelings or, or, or more um, nationalistic signatures somehow.
0: With this in mind, what are the options for future development? Not everyone is a fan of garden colonies, but some people go as far as saying that we should start demolishing them. And their main argument is, well, there's a major housing crisis in Berlin. In a city where lots of people are struggling to find one apartment, having a second home can feel kind of like a luxury. Rather than demolishing the colonies, the Senate suggested dividing the current plots into two, or even sharing them between multiple tenants. But the practical implementation of these ideas doesn't exist.
2: I think no, most part of the gardens I know are in areas where like, you wouldn't want to live there because it's, it's loud or it's industrial or so it's kind of wasteland if not and then is the question I don't think you will solve the the,
3: the, the housing crisis with
2: that with the gardens
3: I mean why do they have to be that big I mean first it's really um, a big privilege in, in our case for two persons it's really um, a very <laughs> lucky situation, to be honest. Maybe that size is not necessary.
5: So, I, I don't I don't, know. Again, I'm happy to have this place to, to rehearse and I'm happy to have a garden and not living so far away from it, but if I wouldn't have grown up in one and had the opportunity, I wouldn't be like, yeah, let's get a garden house. I mean, I had great times growing up here. Yeah, we had a pool and a garden and yeah, you could lay on the grass. Like it was great. I definitely don't think anybody should be stoned for renting one or getting one, but I can understand the cliches and the stereotypes of people who live in a garden house because mostly they're actually true.
0: At the beginning of this episode, we imagined the first time that you saw a garden colony and we asked you to think about getting your own. Now, at the end of the episode, we would like to ask you one final question. What do you want to see the garden allotments become?
1: Thanks for tuning in to another Berlin. We often ask for episode ideas, and the idea for this episode was actually a suggestion from one of you. So thank you. Please keep sending good ideas our way. As always, the show and research notes are available on our website Another.Berlin. If you enjoy what we're doing, please give us a review and share this episode with your friends. And think about supporting us on Patreon.
0: The best way to get in touch with us is on Instagram at another underscore Brooklyn Maybe you have a great idea for a future episode, let us know. Once again, my name is Cody.
1: And my name is Katarina, and this has been another, another Berlin. Berlin.